From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Welcome back from Atlanta, Joanna. Thank you very much. How was the Hugh Society's Wine and Culture Fest? It was amazing, as usual. Went down there with colleagues, Keith and Katie. You're familiar with them. Yeah, um, those people are the best. <laughs> we had a blast. We drank We drank a lot. You did? Yeah, we well, we drank a lot of wine, and then we went out and drank a lot of drinks, other drinks. <laughs> <laughs> did you take the uh, award? with you the whole time or like when you got like when you win the stanley cup did you tour it around atlanta oh no we, it was like the last thing we did was win an award oh. <laughs> so i just stuffed it in a bag and took it on the plane <laughs> yeah you, you but, gave a great speech thank you yeah i you know in my like haze and nervousness totally forgot to mention you and josh adam i'm so sorry but i meant to it was written paragraphs on me but not on you guys sorry <laughs> I saw when Keith, when you gave them my room back to Keith and I was like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. I think we both blacked out a little bit, but it's oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, we don't know what say. It's cool. But it was such an honor to win that award and so much fun to drink so many wonderful wines and have so great what, cocktails. What have you been drinking? Yeah. So um, wine wise, while we were there, we had some really delicious stuff from different winemakers around the world, actually. Um, a few standouts for me were... Paula Harrell wines, Chris Christensen's Bodkin wines, um, and wines from Natasha Williams under the label called, I'm going to mess it up and I'm so sorry, but Lely Van Saron. It's a South African wine and they were very, very delicious. And then outside of that, um, we went to a number of very good restaurants while we were there. One was Miller Union and we had some delicious Foradori wine. And then we went to a few different cocktail spots. Talat Market was a really great one. They have Thai-inspired classics on their menu, which were really great. We went to the James Room, which was also great. A lot of uh, wonderful classic cocktails. And then uh, we went to Boca Lupo, um, which they had uh, cocktails there too, but we had some Coast wine. That was Coast. Very delicious. delicious. Yeah, so a lot of good eating eating and drinking this this weekend. ATL, man. Yeah, it's a great, it's like a great city for eating and drinking, I think. It really is. I mean, there's like wonderful culture there too, but for those two things, I I think it excels, maybe a little underrated. I think it is. Mm -hmm. I think it definitely is. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. What about you, Zach? Well, at time of recording, uh, my wife uh, has been out of town for work since Sunday, and uh, so I have mostly been drinking to survive. Me and the kids. Um, <laughs> it's been it's been a bit of a, a bit of a, you know it's fine. But uh, my my daughter, uh, who's not quite a year old, had a very difficult time going to bed one night. Uh, and that night, when she finally did fall asleep, uh, as it turns out, not for very long, but in the interim between when she <laughs> was uh, awake and awake again, uh, I definitely poured myself um, a, a sizable pour of Lagavulin, which is one of my favorite <laughs> single malts. Uh, nice. been, so that's been kind of my single malt has been kind of what I've been drinking because it's like a really good for me, like the children are finally asleep, the like crushing weight of solo parenting with also our <laughs> ch- other child care provider out of town. Uh, it's been, you know, like a little much. So anyhow, uh, yeah, a lot of single malt. Um, I did have a really nice bottle of rosé the other day, too, um, which was uh, from uh, the folks at uh, Big Table Farm down in the Willamette Valley, their uh, Laughing Pig Rosé, which is a rosé of Pinot Noir. And that was quite delightful. It's been quite hot here, so it was a nice kind of refresher with uh, 
with dinner, but uh, yeah, just mostly scotch and um, trying to trying to drink a lot of coffee to get through the not so very so this is sort of through the sleep deprived days. So if I'm a little incoherent today, you'll know why. How about you, Adam? Uh, so for me, I had a few delicious things, but the two that really stood out the last week was one I had a bottle of Morgone made by Thibault Ducru. I'm gonna butcher that name too. Uh, imported by Jenny and Francois, that was like clean, delicious, just like really nice uh, Morgone. I had that at Inga's Bar, which is a new restaurant in um, the Brooklyn Heights neighborhood of nice. Brooklyn. It was really cool. Really I, hear, nice. I hear Brooklyn Heights is blowing up. Uh, I mean, apparently Montague Street's <laughs> the new thing. Uh, You're you so know, ahead of the trend, Adam. I'm so, you know, always. <laughs> and uh, and then I had a, some grim beers recently, and nice. the one that stood out the most to me was Butterfly Door, which is like a one of their like hazy IPAs. You know, craft breweries they love these weird names uh, for their limited <laughs> well, releases. That's part of the appeal, right? Yeah. Although and then I, I would have had no idea what kind of beer that was from the name. Like you're just like it could be anything. Yeah. What is it? Butterfly what? Door. No. Yeah, it could be a hazy IPA. It could be a fruited sour. It could be a, you know, a pilsner. Like, who the fuck knows? Butterfly yeah. door. Yeah, like on the can is just like, you know, uh, a, a DeLorean. You know, the, the oh, door okay. flies yeah. open. Butterfly door. Fair enough. <laughs> it's just like so ridiculous. I'd love to talk to a few brewers about how they come up with naming like naming their beers. They get really high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they name the beer. I assume somewhere on the internet there is like a beer name generator and they just like hit refresh oh, until they find yes. one they like. Yeah. And then the third thing I had is gonna jump us off into our uh you know, our staffing segment. And that is I had a really interesting Gibson. Mm-hmm. At a new restaurant that had opened in that has opened in Fort Greene, but the problem with this new restaurant was that it's very hard to get into. Like it's it's not like Miss Otta hard, but mm-hmm. it's hard. Like it's it's always booked. It's gotten a lot of press. Um, it sort of has a Italian theme to it. Okay, lab coats that kind of jam. If you know what I'm talking about, you mm-hmm. know. And it's quite expensive. Um, And we were in and out in 45 minutes. Oh, wow. Because of staffing issues, right? They were so understaffed that they were just rushing the food as fast as possible. And there was one server covering, like, the entire restaurant. Oh, wow. So once he got your order, like, the food went. You know what I mean? And Mm. so it had me thinking a lot about just – this conversation we had a long time ago about what is going to be the new normal of restaurants. Like I think we now are at a point where a lot of people feel like the pandemic has reached a sort of constant demic, right? Where we're going to live with this Mm -hmm. and people are going back to work, right? We're at the office. Other people are, you know, back on planes, things like that. And there's been a lot of things over the past few months that continue to be an issue for restaurants and staffing is the biggest right my cousin owns a mexican restaurant here in new york and they've been unable to open certain weekends because literally one staffer calling in sick means they can't run Mm -hmm. the kitchen or they can't run the front of house and so i started to really wonder like what does the new model look like right because i think the idea there's been so few places i've gone to since this pandemic 
where the idea of high touch service exists anymore, yeah. right? Where I, I think like the reason we got rushed was not the server's fault. The reason we got rushed was because no one was paying attention to our table. And whenever that check went in, no one was like, okay, now fire this or fire that. And so everything just came. Mm -hmm. And so then by the time like the entree came, like we were going to order wine, but like, what was the point at that point? Like, and I think that's also a disservice to restaurant. Like no owner would want to hear that, right? That there was a table that would have drank something else, which is a big margin and they lost out on it. Right. Yeah. And then I've had other, you know, this past week, Naomi was out to dinner and uh, another like buzzy restaurant and they came over to their table 30 minutes, like after they'd sat down for 30 minutes, they weren't drinking and said, Hey, you know, we're, we're kind of understaffed. So like once you're done with your food, if you guys want to hang out, that's cool. But we'd like to move you to the bar because it'd be easier for us to deal with you there. And they were just like, what? Yeah. Like it was so weird. And the thing is like, they were like, the food was amazing. Like I see why people have written about it for the food, but they were just honest. Right. Yeah. But that's still so off putting to the consumer to be told like, Hey, we don't want to deal with your table anymore. And we could use this table for something else. And we'd be easier for us to just kind of let you hang at the bar if we don't need to deal with you because we only have one person basically on the floor. Yeah. yeah. And so you just keep seeing this happening more and more and more. And so I wanted to sort of chat about this and say, like, what do we think the future is? Like, you see some people getting creative with now ordering at the counter, yep. right? So there's a lot of that where there's really just a runner now and maybe your food's not paced, but maybe that allows the cost to come down a little bit because – you order at the counter, you get up when you need something, and you still are willing to order a chicken milanese or something like that, right? Or is the future like robot order, you know, servers? Yeah. Like you're seeing this in lots of dim sum restaurants in New York now where literally robots are coming around delivering soup dumplings and stuff like that. Like mm -hmm. I just – it seems like we're past a point where this is going to correct itself. Yeah. At least anytime soon. So what's the solution? Because I think the problem is – a lot of consumers are unwilling anymore to hear that it's a staffing problem. Mm -hmm. Like when I talk to just our readers, it's, you know, general consumers, et cetera, everyone's like, I'm over it now, or I'm going to leave less of a tip, or I'm going to not frequent that place again. And that sucks too, because I don't think this is the fault of the restaurants. Knowing so many people in the industry, it is a staffing issue, but then is there, a, do we need to change the model? So that's what I'm curious about today. I think what's particularly hard about this as well is that prices are going up yeah. too. So it feels like the hospitality or like the dining experience has changed in, in a pretty dramatic way and you're paying more for it. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, we can talk about what, what we think will change, but I do think what will need to change is kind of how we handle these things as diners and what our expectations are. Yeah. And I think they're going to have to, like we're going to have to lower our expectations um, because like you said, it's not, it's not their fault, right? Like if people call out sick or they're just chronically understaffed, like it's not their fault if the service suffers as a result of that. Um, and I think we're just going to have to change our expectations while simultaneously paying more for that experience and for that privilege of going out to eat. Yeah. Then does that mean that maybe just like a lot of restaurants need to close? I mean, I think it's kind of remarkable that new restaurants are opening. Like, I think that must be really challenging, right? Like, how I, you know, so many places, most places are like, we're hiring. And who are they hiring? The hiring pool is extreme. The, the staffing pool is extremely small. We know this and this hasn't changed. Yeah. So this is really funny to me in a way because literally 
the very first thing I ever wrote about the restaurant industry in my professional career, which is was now probably 12 years ago, was about how hard it was to hire people. In This was in Seattle at the time and why the labor pool was smaller and less skilled than it had ever been. And it's only gotten worse since then. And I think there are a lot of reasons for this. And a lot of them are like everything else that that has come out of the pandemic. It has served to accelerate certain things. And I think a big piece of it is that we as, as members of the dining public have gotten very used to a certain model for dining that I think is is grossly unsustainable. And it's not even so much yep. about cost. It's about access to restaurants in that a model for a lot of restaurants that just no longer works is being open seven days a week for long stretches of time. It's really, really hard to staff those kinds of restaurants and to, and to staff them through the lean times. And I think one yeah. thing that we're seeing in this current uh, landscape where there is a lot of demand is people are jumping around because they're looking for a better job. They're looking for better pay when possible. And that's fine. That's people's certainly their right to do so. And at the same time, I think you're also seeing restaurants that are not, whether they're new or old, not really saying, okay, what can we maybe, you know, not saying something like, is it better perhaps for us to be open four or five nights a week fully staffed than seven nights a week understaffed? And I get it. On the one hand, you can understand the the thought process of the owner and operator being like, well, I'm fucking paying rent seven days a week. So right. why do I want to be closed two or three of those days and just you know, just, you know, sort of throwing money away? But on the other hand, I think there's this real risk. If you're trying to build something that is long-term and sustainable and you're not just trying to open something, get some hype, you know, kind of burn through it in two years and then move on, which some people do. And that's, you know, its own business model. And that works for some folks. Certainly in a place like New York, I think it's a little more viable than in a lot of other markets. But if you're looking to build a sustainable restaurant, your goal is to be open for a decade plus. I mean, I think that's most operators' goals, at least when they launch. You might have to focus on what you can plausibly do. And that might be shorter hours, fewer days. You might not be able to do multiple services because in the end, it's, you know, the, the story you relayed, the second one you relayed, Adam, about Naomi's experience is, I think, a really tragic one because as great mm -hmm. as the food can be, I think there are not very many people who are willing to put up with shitty service. And I'm not knocking the people who provided the service. In some cases, they probably are, you know, they're, they're just in a bad position. You know, they're they're yeah. not the ones responsible for staffing. Maybe their manager is like, hey, you got to get those folks off that table. We have another table to seat. And, you know, they didn't do it a very graceful way, but that's how it goes sometimes. But in the end, I feel like with that kind of experience, there are very few you know, very there's very few people who are willing to put up with being kind of given shitty service just to get great food. Because the truth is that in New York City and in lots of other places, there are other great restaurants to try. And I think you know, there's just this, you know, sadness to me in hearing these stories. And I've heard them from lots of other people, you know, here in Seattle and other places too, of just how, you know, the, that ability to feel taken care of in a restaurant that is so central to the experience of dining out for most of us mm -hmm. is just really hard to do when you're understaffed, when your service staff is overworked, they're exhausted. I've been that person providing that 
not great service a few times. It didn't feel good after the fact, but when you're yeah. working your you know third double in a row and you're just fucking burned out, it's really hard to be graceful with people. And sometimes those people don't deserve a lot of grace because sometimes they can be shitty, but oftentimes they did. And it was, it always made me feel bad after the fact to have been, you know, somewhat short with someone or just not give them the service that they probably deserved. Cause it's not their fault that I'm the one stuck working a third double because no one else is available. And that is a that is not a sustainable model for anyone. It's not for the it, it, people you know providing the service. It's not for the operators, and it's not for diners either. Yeah. So, so I have a question here. Right. Well, I, I have one more thought off yes. of that. Sorry. So I also just think that if we, in order to get that level of like hospitality and to be taken care of, I think we're going to have to pay a premium for it. Yeah. Right. Like you're going to go to the fine dining restaurants and they'll take care of you, and it will be a wonderful experience, but it will be. Very, very expensive. But that's why I'm wondering if, you know, there are just too many of the other kind of restaurant that the ones that I think the ones that are easier to hire for are the ones that are always packed. And even if they are in this middle tier, Mm -hmm. the service team knows they're going to they're going to make a lot of money because these places are packed and they do massive turnover. And, you know, it's usually a great experience, even if they're not super high end. The ones that I feel like are harder are these ones that are like somewhere in the middle. Some nights they're packed, maybe weekends, but, you know, Thursday's a little bit less full than Friday. Wednesday's not full at all. And and that's where like the thing that always blew me away about New York when I first moved here was there was a lot of places in Atlanta, and I think there still are, where the counter ordering system was very common. Mm-hmm. Like There was a place I think about a lot called Figo Pasta. I don't even know if it still exists anymore, but at the time – it was in the same area where – I mean we went to a place like this in Atlanta as well when I took you to Taqueria del Sol yeah. last year, right? It was in the same shopping center. So you had Bacchanalia in the shopping center as well, which was – you know, it would be a two- to three-star Michelin restaurant if they did Michelin in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Super high-end tasting menu. You had Taqueria. You had Figo. Figo was a really nice Italian restaurant, but you ordered at the counter – you ordered your bottle of wine, your cocktail, whatever, and then all the service staff was in charge of was basically pacing, right? They would bring out the, they would drop the food, et cetera. And because you paid at the beginning, you left your tip at the beginning too. And a lot of people, I think, tip better before the experience than after. And especially as we're seeing now with you know with all these studies about how people are tipping higher because it's on the screen. I mean, I'm talking about Figo ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's a screen and someone can leave a really good tip and then go sit down and they know that like for an hour and a half they're here having this experience, but they've already placed their order. They talk to the person at the counter who might be more well versed in both the food and the wine. You put your best person behind the counter to interact with the guests, and then everyone else is just kind of running the food. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of the solution, right? Maybe we do need to see more of these kinds of places where you can get people in and out, you know, you can move people through. I think people don't tend to linger at places like that, right? Because also once the drinks are gone, you would have to get back up and go back to the counter again to order. Right. So you're not going to really do that, right? So when your meal is done, your meal is done. If you didn't place an order for coffee at the end, you probably aren't going to have it. Mm-hmm. And then you you go home. And there's and, a lower entry for staffing there too, right. right? And then people feel like, okay, I can go out and for a couple maybe have a $100 night, which I think in New York it, at all right now is pretty impossible. Yeah. Um, and so when it becomes – and that's where – I think people get very frustrated when you're doing that cost-benefit analysis. And yes, we sh- in a perfect world, everyone would be understanding. But when you start saying, I'm paying over $100 for my night out, and the- it sucked, mm-hmm. p- 
people are less understanding. Sure. Which is why I understand why people don't want to go back into that industry because they're going to be abused. Well, it's also expectation setting with that kind of service, right? You order at a counter and automatically all of us are like pleased if the service exceeds our expectations. And, you know, if if all the service does is provide you with your food that you ordered, you're like, okay, that's kind of what I got into this expecting and great. And if the server is or whoever that you know the, the the front of house people are more engaging and knowledgeable and helpful than you anticipated, then you're gonna walk away from that experience feeling great, even if the exact same level of service would be just like par for the course at a full service restaurant. And I think about this sometimes in the same way that we think about like the way we think about service in bars, right? Like if you think about what you expect if you walk into, you know, not just a dive bar, but like a neighborhood bar, right? Not a place that's a cocktail bar, not a place where you're expecting that. And what you expect is that the bartender gets you your drink relatively promptly. Maybe if it's not super busy, they chat with you for a little bit if you're there by yourself. But mostly they just provide you with your drinks and you tip them and you're done. Like you're not expecting them to kind of carry you through this experience. And the reality is, I think this is the other thing I wanted to say is, Certainly, I think here in Seattle, I've seen this. I imagine it's only more so in New York. You also see a lot of restaurants opening that are promising a kind of dining experience that they just cannot deliver on. And some of that is a food yeah. side of things, but a lot of it is service, right? And if you're if you're kind of breathlessly promising, you know, this incredible food and this, you know, dynamite wine list and these great cocktails, like opening a place like that without having everything really dialed in from the service standpoint is you're just dooming yourself to fail because the truth mm-hmm. is, is that, you know, we've talked about this, I think on the pod, at least indirectly before, but like a lot of these places that open again, the press release is breathlessly gushing about the, you know, the qualifications of the chef and the sommelier or wine director and the head bartender. And none of those people are there most of the time, or they're onto a new project six months in. And like, they just leave behind this kind of like decayed shell of a restaurant. That's like, Everyone else is just trying to kind of pick up the pieces. And like, this is a part of the way that restaurants operate in this modern, you know, kind of environment that I find really unfortunate, which is like, it is a lot for a lot of people. It's like burn bright and then crash. And that is a, that, that is driven maybe by the, the landscape and the sort of staffing issues don't help, but it is one of these things where you are just kind of, you know, I'm very skeptical these days with most of the press releases I read. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know. I was thinking of, you know, just when you were mentioning the shorter hours earlier, Zach, like other things we could maybe see that might help with this. And we've already seen some of it in New York with some new restaurants opening with just tasting menus or just more limited menus. I think that's definitely something we could see more of, which obviously changes the dining experience. Um, And something else like, I don't know, maybe there's something to borrowing from like an omakase and doing seatings. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, you have three seatings a night and they book up and that's kind of the extent of your service. And you can kind of anticipate that and staff for it. But yeah, those were some other things I was thinking about. Well, I just was going to say that actually prompts a thing that I had meant to mention earlier. And I'm very curious because I feel like New York is a place where maybe you're seeing this and is a, a good spot for it, which is how about what I guess maybe might be termed or maybe is already being termed kind of like micro restaurants, right? Like, a place that has only 10 or 12 seats. I feel like there, we went through a, like a, a little bit of a craze of this a while ago with like, you know, places that were just basically chef's counters, but like the idea Mm -hmm. of a space where like, yeah, you have a very limited number of seats. You're booking everything out in advance. And obviously this is a kind of dining that can only work for certain models. It's not going to be an every restaurant can't do this, but that allows you to also very precisely know your staffing needs because coming at this from the other side of it, 
where it's not just a staffing issue in terms of like, we just don't have enough people to work. Having been on the managerial side to some extent too, one of the hardest things about staffing restaurants is not knowing what to expect, right? You you might have, you know, unless you're the kind of place that's booking out pretty much solid all night, which look, those restaurants exist, but they are not the norm. A lot of times you're just having to make an educated guess. And you know what happens if you bring in too much staff? Your staff is bitchy all night because they know they're not going to make as much money. They're bored. They have other stuff they want to be doing. And so you're always kind of running this fine line as a manager or the person who's making staffing decisions, not on a macro level, but on a shift to shift level of over or understaffing. And if you miss on either side, you're in kind of bad shape. And if you miss consistently on either side, your staff's going to get unhappy or your customers are going to get unhappy or both. And that's a really difficult thing to do. And that reservation systems and and bookings and things like that can help ameliorate, even if it's not necessarily an option for many kinds of restaurants, those that could do it might be, might, it might behoove them to do so. Yeah. I, I'm always, I'm, I'm curious if like, partly why we're still seeing issues, even with these new space spaces is because these were ideas that existed pre pandemic. Mm, interesting. And like, no one's really adapted yet. Like, is it going to take another six months to a year to start seeing for people starting to realize like, oh shit, this isn't correcting. Well, they're coming up with their business model now. Right. And yeah. and now realizing like this, because I think a lot of people assumed that it was going to correct, you know, and it's just not, Yeah. you know, and I, you know, I, I was listening to this interesting interview about airlines. And I think it's the same, right? Why are there, why are we having so many airline issues right now? Because of staffing. Well, who wants to go take a job to be abused? If what they're reading about is that people are complaining about their flights getting canceled and being delayed, et cetera, like, do you want to be that gate agent? Do you want like, do you want to be that flight attendant? Like, that's not a lot of fun. That doesn't sound like the career decision you make right now. And if you're hearing the same in the restaurant industry that like customers are being assholes because there's not a lot of people on the floor. And so they're getting frustrated because it's taking off their food to come and their food's coming too fast or you're not, you know, getting it's their orders fast enough. Right. Then you don't want to work there. Yeah. Why would you want to? And then, you know, the other thing is, and it's interesting that, that Joanna, you brought this up because I think your conclusion is, I think what's going to happen is I do think we're going to see a, an elimination of most of the middle tier restaurants. Mm-hmm. Like from what I've heard from people in the industry, like the highest end restaurants, they're who's stealing the staffs. Yeah. Right. So, for example, the taco place I'm talking about, my cousins, they are on the same block as Gotham Bar and Grill. Yeah. Gotham Bar and Grill hired away one of their front of house people to be a a server there. Yeah. Right. Because they can make more money there and it's Gotham Bar and Grill. Right. They're going down to go to get someone else. Right. They're not looking anymore for people who have similar experience. Right. And I think that's what's going to happen. And so the middle is going to be sort of like sucked out. Yeah. And I want to elaborate on this point because I think there's another important piece here. And I think it connects both the service side, the kitchen side, and also to some extent what you're talking about with like airlines and other industries like that. And it's this. When I got into the restaurant industry, which was a long time ago now, there was a, a notion among the people I worked with, the the front of house staff in particular, that if you worked in a good restaurant, you know, Seattle, and this is in the early 2000s, you could make a good wage, right? You weren't going to be wealthy, but I worked with people who bought houses, raised children, did all that on a server's wage. As Seattle and other cities have gotten more and more expensive, that has become less and less possible. And even if you work in a restaurant where you make good tips, the truth is, is that for both reasons that are, you know, reasons that are understandable, i.e. like now all your tips are mostly 
tracked because they're credit cards and you can't cheat on your taxes the way a lot of people I worked with did when in the early 2000s when you were <laughs> mostly getting cash tips. And for just the, because the the reality is that income for people in the service industry has not really kept up with inflation or certainly tracked with the rise of just cost of living in these cities. And when you combine it with the fact that it's become clear and clear to a lot of people that there there isn't a long-term trajectory for most people in the front of house uh, or even back of house, frankly, that you can aspire to, right? Unless you really want to be you know, someone like, like I ended up becoming like a wine specialist, or maybe you're like really into bartending, really into cocktails, and you could envision becoming, a, you know, a bar director or a beverage director for a, a larger company or opening your own bar, potentially. There aren't a lot of paths that you can see for yourself where, okay, maybe I'm going to work in this industry at, you know, not great wages for a few years, but it's going to lead me somewhere. And the truth right. is, is that most of the people I worked with who had any kind of those aspirations, you know, to buy a house, have a family, they left the restaurant industry, if not bef- if not during the pandemic, before it. And those people are working here in Seattle. They're working for mostly working for Amazon, frankly, or they're working for other yeah. tech companies. And they may not be doing, they're not doing tech work per se. They're doing admin work or things like that. But like they make at least as much money. They have, you know, things like vacation pay and healthcare and regular hours. And they have opportunities to get promotions and raises. And like, these are things that when I was working in the restaurant industry and like seemed alien to me, it was like, Oh wait, yeah, you people, I friends of mine who work in other industries, like you get a holiday bonus. That's cool. I don't, you get like pay raises. Like I get better shifts maybe, or like maybe my tips go up if I do a better job, but like it is a, a industry that is not really built for the realities of 2022 for most people. And if you're someone who is a young person today, you are acutely aware. I think that if you kind of just, I mean, this is, I don't mean this negatively because I did this. It's not a criticism. If you just kind of fuck around in your 20s, you're much more behind the eight ball if you have those life goals, right? It's like hard to catch up to your peer group. It's already hard enough for your peer group who is like, I'm going to go right away working in different kinds of industries. But if you are sort of like the kind of person who wants to, you know, work restaurants because it's fun and it's fun hours and you have, you know, kind of more flexibility and maybe you get more cash up front but you're not kind of building towards anything like making up that lost decade is really, really hard. And I think that whether people are thinking of it in those terms or not, I think it's just the reality that the, the industry is much less enticing to people than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. And the industry has always relied on that influx of people in their early twenties who, whether they have long-term ambitions in the restaurant industry or not, you know, provide a lot of that sort of lower level labor force and whether it's working in more casual restaurants and then moving on to nicer restaurants or being, you know, your food runners and your, your back waiters and your bussers and stuff in nicer restaurants and eventually working your way up to higher positions. There just isn't that influx of people because, because that generation, that cohort is like, why the fuck do I want to do that? I don't. And I can't say I blame them. Yeah. That's really, it's pretty bleak. Yeah. I'm getting much sleep, Joanna. I'm in a bleak mood. (laughs) <laughs> I, mean, I would be interested to hear what people think are solutions. Like if, you know, they feel like they're what new models you, you think of if you're listening to podcasts, if you work in the industry, uh, yeah. what you're seeing that's working. Look, also, maybe we're hearing this is across the country, but maybe in your market, it's not as big of a problem as it is in other markets. I'm, I'm curious about all of that. So hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com and let us know what you think. Um, you know, I do think where you are seeing this hit the hardest 
which is really interesting. Uh, I think we've all kind of alluded to it, but it is in this like, not just the middle tier, but these middle tier restaurant groups. Whereas, you know, Joanna and Zach, you both kind of said pieces of this where it's, you know, it's when the, when it's too expensive. So we're getting frustrated, but also like the real players aren't there. Like at all the restaurants, even in Brooklyn, I can think of that are still crushing it. And the experience is great. Usually one of the owners is there. Mm-hmm. One of the owners or the chef or it was built behind a really well-known beverage professional and they're always on the floor, especially on the key nights. And that is usually the places that are still incredible joys to be at. And then there's the places where like you can just tell everyone's stretched too thin and there's not enough people and the owners, fair or not fair, like want a weekend, you know, and they yeah. want they want to have the same things and that's that makes it hard and they can't be everywhere. Yeah. Right? They can't be everywhere. So, well, hit us up at podcast.com. Let us know what you think. Um, really curious to hear if you think counter ordering robots or <laughs> other things are the future. And uh, we'll see you all back here on Friday. Looking forward to it. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.